You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Our theme today is reconciliation, and the passage that I was given to comment on would be be kind, compassionate, forgiving each other just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, this describes a kind of reconciled being. But the vision behind reconciled being is that, that's what I want to suggest, of a life of home, of home. And we see that in the most famous biblical story about reconciliation. And that's the story from the Gospel of Luke of the return of the prodigal son. It starts with a basic rift, son goes away, and then uh, in misfortune there decides to return and reconstitute that which he has broken by having left home. Now this image of home, return back to home, has become in the Christian tradition a kind of journey of the self from where we find ourselves back to God. But it has also become the image of a journey of a world who has gone astray as a whole back to its fulfillment in God. So that the great theme of the Bible is human homelessness, world's homelessness, and human home and world's home with God. Now, it's this journey that I want to describe to you, this idea of the world as a God's home, and that's gonna be the subject, main subject of my talk to you. So my topic is, why did God create the world? And why it matters for reconciliation? Why did God create the world? That's a really big question, one of the most important questions we almost never ask. And the reason we ask probably is because it's too big dauntingly big, it seems impossible to answer. How would I know what was in God's mind when God set to create the world? And after all, doesn't doesn't Isaiah tell us that God's thoughts are as far from ours as are the heavens from the earth? It's hard to answer that question, But it also might not be an important question to answer, some of you might suggest. Isn't that a bit like that philosophical question that goes like this? Why is there something rather than nothing? Now, that's really interesting for philosophical and theological geeks. But for the rest of us, it seems very unimportant. Shouldn't we rather worry about the state of the world? For instance, about 2.6 million billion people who live on $2 a day. Now, I'll come back to these 2.6 billion children of God because they're extraordinarily important. And I'll try to show why the answer, why God created the world matters for them as well. But first, I want to ask you, a very personal question. Why do you exist? I'm not asking how you came to be born. 
we all know the basics of biology involved. I'm asking you, what is the purpose of your life? Christian tradition and theists more generally believe that the purpose of our lives is not at our disposal to determine as each of us suits the way we sometimes determine what kind of outfit are we going to wear when we go to a party. The purpose of our lives is inscribed in the very fabric of our being by the fact that God created us. And as you see, that brings us back to my original question. Why did God create the world? And why did God create each one of us? Our lives are intertwined, placed in the web of creation. And none of us can find our purpose simply on our own. And if we live with a purpose, we must live not against the grain of reality, but with the grain of reality. So why did God create the world? Two books of the Bible start with in the beginning, Genesis and John's Gospel. And then they go on to tell that God created the world, but they don't tell us immediately why. If you read these stories to their ends, when the arc of the story completes, then a unified and a single answer appears to that question. God created the world to be God's and human home in one. Let's look at each of these stories. In Genesis, the story begins and God created the world and God created the world that ends at the end of Exodus. God creates, God declares everything good. Human beings spoil that, but God, that which God has created. God calls Abraham. God delivers children of Israel from the slavery in Egypt. All that with one single purpose. I will be their God, and there will be my people. And then at the end of Exodus, when you have the glory of the Lord coming down in tabernacle so that Moses cannot even enter it, God has come to dwell in Israel and to take Israel to the promised land. God's dwelling in Israel, in the people and in the land, is the capstone of creation. In the Gospel of John, God creates all things, and then the, we know what the end of this creation is only 17 chapters later. 17 chapters later, just before Jesus Christ is arrested, condemned, and crucified. He speaks to these, his disciples, and he tells them, so that the love with which you, the Father, has loved me before the foundation of the world, may be in them and I in them, so that the Father and the Son together may make, and here's the word again, our home in them. <laughs> the purpose of God with creation is for God to dwell in the world. Now, when we look at these big stories, which I sketched very briefly for you, then suddenly when you read 
about Garden of Eden, and if, when you read about the New Jerusalem at the end, you see them with different eyes. Why did God put Adam and Eve into the Garden of Eden? God put them so that they would work and make this garden a flourishing home for them. Why did God come during the evening breezes to walk in the garden? Well, because the garden wasn't just Adam's and Eve's home, the garden was also God's home. At the end of the book of, of the Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, we see John of Patmos has a vision. And that vision is of the new Jerusalem, a city that is coming down from heaven upon the new, renewed earth. And then, just to make sure that, that, that John is not missing what is right in front of his nose, a strong, loud voice from the throne speaks and explains the vision. And God says, Behold the home of God among mortals. I will be with them, or he will be with them, and they will be God's peoples. God and the peoples of the earth together in a single home, that's the purpose of God with creation. It seems to be very plain. God the creator is a homemaker God. Now we can return to these 2.6 billion impoverished people, most of whom, many of whom don't have a home at all, and most of whom live in the circumstances that we will hardly ever want to call a home. I want to take this problem of poverty along with two, three other home-destroying forces and to show what we are called to as Christians to be. First, let's take the economics of home. Great disparity in wealth, though I could have talked also about disparities in opportunities. Imagine a home with me. Two family members, each has two dollars a day. Next sibling has $40 a day. The one after that, a little bit more privileged, has $400 a day. And the father has $4,000 a day just for his own disposal. Imagine dinner table at that home. At one end of that table, two family members, threadbare clothes, half of bowl of rice and a pitcher of polluted water in front of them. At the other end of the table, the rest of the household dressed in their finery, craft culinary masterpieces before them and exquisite wine. Now, if your neighbor, if you knew that your neighbor had a home like that, what would you think? Wouldn't you be scandalized? Well, we know that God is scandalized at the thing because Jesus told the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And yet, each one of us lives in just such a home, a one planetary home. Now, the politics of home tracks with the economics of home that 
small group at one end of the table, could not help but cast longing looks at what's happening at the other end of the table. How could you blame them wanting to take part in those sumptuous meal, in that sumptuous meal that the other, other end is being eaten? As to the feasting group, if they ever even looked at this other side of the table, they would look at it with an air of superiority to them and also casting an eye to make sure that they don't come too close and endanger the standing of the other group. Pretty soon, a wall would go up and the security apparatus would be established. Lazarus would be living in some makeshift home of his own and his soul might be simmering with longing, resentment and anger. The rich man will have built his fortress, and there in this fortress, he would seemingly live in security, and yet both would be homeless. One imprisoned, one in the gilded prison of false superiority and luxury, and the other one in the life of misery in the life of precarity and languishing. And yet both are brothers. Abraham's children, Jesus says. God created each. God created both to live one in one and the same home. Now, wealth and power are ancient foes of home. I should rather say not wealth and power as such, but our inordinate love for wealth and our fascination and misuse of power. For you need wealth and power to be at home. You need wealth and power, some kind of wealth and power, to at all exist as a human being. And yet, when they get distorted, when they acquire features that in the Bible are called mammon and leviathan, they are forces that undo our sense of home and our sense of flourishing. They're ancient foes, but they're also modern foes of home. And they also have these modern foes, enemies of home. They have modern sounding names. I'll call them, this, this, this is the, the two that I will emphasize are this, escalation and reification. Now, the modern names and fancy names notwithstanding, they are the forces that we experience every single day and that undermine our sense of home. And there are monsters, like Mammon and Leviathan are too. So let me take first uh, escalation. In modern world, the only way to live is to live the way you ride a bicycle. You move forward. Once you stop moving forward, you fall. And you can just move forward at any pace that suits you or at any pace that you are capable of. And the reason for that is that you are actually always, whether you think of it or not, in a race. And therefore, you need to move pedal faster 
and faster. Now, that's the logic of escalation. It comes out in two forms in the world. One form concerns the, our relationship to time. The other form concerns our relationship to space. Let me take first time. The pace of life is increasing. And you can see that because we never have enough time. One of the uh, German sociologists describing this phenomenon has written, amid technological and monetary affluence, citizens of modern societies are temporarily, in terms of time, become insolvent, which is to say, we always run behind. And therefore, we always need to run faster and faster. Go with me to this large table that I was describing. Lazarus at the end eats his meal very fast, and so does also the, the rich man. And we eat our meals thinking about what we have left undone and strategizing what might come ahead of us. And in the process, in this meal, as in the rest of the life, this meal, as the rest of the, our life, is, are the steps of a hamster whose wheel is spinning faster and faster. A hamster wheel is no home for human beings. Let's now move to space. That is to say, extension of our reach. When I was a college student, we used to tell a, a joke about our president, Dr. Kuzmich was, was his name. And the idea, the, the, the joke went like this. What's the difference with Dr. Kuzmich and God? Well, here it is. God is everywhere, and Dr. Kuzmich is everywhere except here. Now, um, you and I can't tell this joke without that joke's but being directed against us as well for sitting in your dorm room and holding your, uh, your phone, sitting, in fact, uh, in this sermon as I'm preaching, right? You might be anywhere except here. <laughs> Always somewhere else means never being at home. Home needs time, and home needs presence, but the logic of escalation, or let's use a name for that, cursor, which is a racer in Latin. Cursus robs us of both of these things. And what the story tells us is this, what I am and where I am, what I do and what I have is not good enough. A home requires us, of us, a sense of goodness of what is, being in time and in place in which we find ourselves, and yet, that's what we are robbed of. Final home-destroying force that I want to mention. It goes under the name reification. It's a fancy word. Uh, I will call this medusa. Medusa as the one who turns everything into stone. Colloquial term for reification is thingification. All things, all entities, all God's creatures 
but turn into mere lifeless objects. This is a dynamic present in, in uh, through enti uh, our entire society. Science, for instance, treats things as entities as if they were things, as if they were inserted into mathematically calculated network of causes and effects. The same happens in our technology. The saying goes that for a person with a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Well, I'll tell you, for a person with a tool, everything looks like a manipulable object. To make it concrete, let's go again to the two ends of the table that I was describing. Lazarus sits on some scratched up, wobbly, plastic chair that he's fished out of a dumpster. He doesn't have a special relationship to it. It simply serve, serves a purpose, and it serves it rather badly. But it's not his old friend when he comes and sits that he feels, in a sense, at one with this object, in a sense, at home. The rich man, too, has his armchair. He sits in it as king sits upon his throne. But for the rich man, too, that chair is just the thing. It is meant to heighten his own sense of and projection of superiority. If anybody around the table were to get a better chair than his, he'd sell his and buy himself even better one because chair serves that purpose. When everything around us is a mere thing serving as a means to some end, we are not at home. So here we have our answer to our big question. God created the world so that the world would become a home, joint home of God and of humanity, indeed of all God's creatures. And we have these two home-destroying forces, Mammon, Leviathan, Cursor, and Medusa. Our own lives as Christians, our own lives as human beings are situated in the tension that exists between God's intention for this world and those home-destroying forces. Jesus Christ came into this world, God on the mission to create this world as God's home. He gave to his disciples the spirit, his spirit, so that the disciples can participate in his mission in the world. True, we can never make this world into God's home. Only God can do that. We can never make this world truly into our home either before God makes it into God's home. That's true as well. And yet we can participate in a God home, God's homemaking project. We can create more home-like relationships. We can change the politics. We can change the dynamics of our economy. We can build homes for people, and we can work for reconciliation. God created the world for God's home, and you participate 
in it by bringing all things together so that they can be, you included, I included, a home of God. And that's why you need to know why God created the world. And that's why you need to know this answer just to be able to do the true work of reconciliation, including being kind, compassionate, forgiving to each other as Christ has forgiven us.